Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. Here with me today is Eliza Townsend, Executive Director of the Maine Women's Lobby. The Maine Women's Lobby is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that advocates for Maine's 678,000 women and girls. Their four policy focus areas are freedom from violence, freedom from discrimination, access to health care, including reproductive health care, and economic security. Last year, just before the 2016 election, we hosted Eliza on Reproductive Left to discuss why the courts matter. A lot has changed since November 2016, and we thought it was appropriate to bring her back on to give us an update. Hi, Eliza. Hi, Abby. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you for being here with me again today. Thank you for having me again. So we're going to do an update on why the courts matter. You were last on Reproductive Left um, in November of 2016, and it was just before the election. And a lot has changed since then. So It certainly has. I think it is appropriate to get an update. The last episode, we actually started with the vacancy on the Supreme Court of the United States, so I'd love to start there again. What happened to that vacancy in the past year? Again, some background is that the uh, Republican members of the Senate had had the majority prior to the election, and they were refusing to confirm or even hold hearings on nominees put forward by President Obama, and that included Merrick Garland, whom President Obama had nominated to fill the seat on the Supreme Court. His opponents were successful in blocking so much as even a hearing. After the election that we elected uh, President Donald Trump, and he nominated and the United States Senate confirmed to the Supreme Court a man named Neil Gorsuch. We were at the Maine Women's Lobby were very much opposed to him uh, for a number of reasons. He has Um, a track record as a very conservative individual, including um, an expression of being an originalist, someone who believes that the, the United States Constitution as written is what we should adhere to. Now, when the United States Constitution was written, women didn't have the right to vote. We argued that the world has changed and we need to change with it. Um, But we along with everyone else, were unsuccessful in preventing Mr. Gorsuch from being confirmed. And today he's the ninth member of the Supreme Court. And how long did it take for him to get nominated compared to how long the vacancy was? 
it was a very, very swift nomination. Um, I don't remember the entire time frame, but he was confirmed by spring. And it's important to point out that our two senators split their votes. Senator King voted in opposition to the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, and Senator Collins voted to confirm. So at the time, there were also numerous vacancies across the country. What is the update on those? That remains the case. There are today 140 vacancies across the country out of a system of 861 judgeships. That means that nearly 20% of the federal court system is vacant, and that provides President Trump with an opportunity to fill as much as 20% of the seats. And that's just today. That, that's if nobody re, you know, retires, dies, etc. Is this a priority of the Trump administration? Clearly, yes. Uh, they've moved really swiftly in making nominations, and the United States Senate has been very, very swift in holding hearings and confirming those judges so that um, a number of, of judges have already been confirmed. There are today 50 nominations made, and 19 of those are waiting for votes in the United States Senate. Are there any that you're particularly concerned about? Oh, golly, I'm worried. There's been a consistent theme, um, especially related to the issues that we work on, of extreme conservatism, of opposition to Roe versus Wade, and hostility to gay, lesbian, transgender Americans. So those are very concerning. Uh, one of the people who was confirmed earlier this month was Amy Coney Barrett, who was on record being very hostile, very hostile to Roe versus Wade, and also saying that her own religious views took precedent over case law. I think that's outrageous but to, she is today a federal judge. You said before that our two senators split their vote on the Neil Gorsuch nomination. Um, is that consistent with the others that they've needed to vote for? Are they consistently splitting their votes? They- yes, they have been. Uh, as To my knowledge, Senator Collins has voted to confirm every nominee put forward by the president. Um, And Senator King has consistently voted against those nominations, for which I'm grateful because I think that these uh, people, by and large, are unsuited to serve. Another nominee who's been getting a lot of attention lately is a man named Brett Talley. He has been practicing law for three years. He has never tried a case. Uh, He declined or he neglected to inform the Senate Judiciary Committee that his wife actually works in the White House. This is very concerning. And can you talk a little bit more about how this impacts our everyday lives? The federal courts uh, hear cases related to federal law and cases which pivot on your constitutional rights. They also hear cases which have to do with federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency or Um, You're probably well aware of the cases that have been making their way through the courts since the president was elected about his proposed ban on travel by certain populations uh, that's been pretty consistently understood to be an effort to target people who are Muslim. 
Those are the kinds of cases that come before the courts. Some examples that we would all be familiar with would be Roe versus Wade, which established that you have a right to privacy in your own reproductive health decisions, and that has resulted in the right to have an abortion. Um, we're familiar with Ledbetter versus Goodyear. Lily Ledbetter worked at Goodyear for decades, and it was only shortly before she retired that she learned that she had been paid significantly less than her male counterpart for, for decades. She lost that case. United States versus Windsor, which was uh, about Edie Windsor's ability to inherit the estate of the woman to, with whom she had lived for decades and to whom she was married. Um, and Obergefell versus Hodges, which ultimately determined that the right for, for marriage equality for gays and lesbians to marry was the law of the land. Those are just some of the most well-known examples of cases before the federal law or before the federal courts. But our rights to vote, our ability to vote, our rights at work, our um, the, the, the law as it concerns environmental protection, every single aspect of our lives is affected by the federal courts. And this is all the more concerning because these positions to which people are named are lifetime appointments. Once confirmed by the United States Senate, judges hold their job for life. That means, um, given that President Trump has today the ability to fill nearly 20% of the federal courts, and that's with three years remaining on in his first term, that he has the opportunity to fundamentally affect law, case law, in the United States for decades. Now, this feels very alarming. Um, if we have listeners that are concerned and want to take action and or want to stay informed on these issues, what can they do or where can they find that information? That's a good that's a good question. Thank you. Because it is alarming. I'm alarmed. And I would hope that your listeners would be equally alarmed. Um, the first step is to stay informed. You can follow the Maine Women's Lobby on Facebook. We talk about these issues there. Receive our action alerts and we'll let you know when important issues are coming up. I personally have a, operate, manage a Google group called Courts Matter to Me. And we would be thrilled to have you sign up and receive those alerts so that you can stay informed. Um, you can go to the website of the Alliance for Justice, which does a really thorough job of analyzing the records of people who are nominated to serve as federal judges. Their website is afj.org, and they, they maintain a section called Judicial Selection, and there's a very obvious, clear place where you can get the analysis of candidates or nominees. So stay informed. Secondly, we've got to spread the word. We need to talk to our friends, our family, our co-workers, our colleagues. Anybody that we know who cares about public life needs to be aware of this issue. Um, so I would urge you, if you're following us on social media, or if you are informed about these issues, to share it on social media, particularly if you're part of a larger group. Uh, if you're really concerned, get informed and write a letter to the editor of your local paper. You'd be surprised. Um, we might joke that print is dying, but in fact, a lot of us read the newspaper. 
and I guarantee you that the staff of the United States Senators are reading those letters to the editor. Um, you can call Senators Collins and King and express your concern about the issue generally and oppose specific bad nominees. And um, an important thing for us to talk about is that we have a vacant judgeship here in Maine. And informal rules of the Senate and of the way Maine's congressional uh, delegation operates mean that Senator Collins will be making a recommendation to President Trump. So um, encouraging her to be thoughtful and asking her about that process and where that stands and what what input she is accepting is a good question to ask. Um, and finally, if you're part of an organization, consider joining our coalition, Courts Matter to Me. Invite us to come talk to your board of directors or to others in your organization. Inform your members about this issue because I assure you it will come around to affect something that you work on. And consider hosting or co-hosting a public education event. We've done a number of these. I think they've been pretty successful in helping to raise awareness of the issues. So thank you, Eliza, so much. I think that um, this is really important information, and I'm happy to spread the word to our listeners. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and WERU. That was Eliza Townsend, Executive Director of the Maine Women's Lobby. Now we're moving into our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. Starting in January, we'll be highlighting different forms of birth control in our Ask Mabel segment. We will hear from women in our community on why they've chosen their birth control method, and following their interviews, our nurse practitioners, either Terry Marley DeRosier or Lindsay Piper, will answer questions about that particular method. We value open and honest conversations about our reproductive lives, and we know that finding the right birth control method isn't always easy. We're hoping to reduce stigma by providing a space for women to share their experiences while also offering accurate information about birth control options. On today's episode, nurse practitioner Lindsay Piper gives an overview of all the birth control options, preparing us to take a deeper look at each method next year. Hi, Lindsay. Thank Hi. you for being on Ask Mabel with us today. My pleasure. So let's start with LARCs, also called long-acting reversible contraception. Can you tell us what the different types of LARCs are out there? Yep. So there are two types, essentially. There's the implant, and there are IUDs. And then within the IUD category, there are multiple different choices, Um but as you stated, long-acting, reversible contraceptives, um, I kind of, a quick way to think of it is set it and forget it. And they're as good as getting your tubes tied, except completely reversible with a very quick return to fertility. How do they work? Uh, it depends on which type. So with the implant, um, there's a very low but steady flow of progestin that inhibits ovulation. And that's the primary way that it works. Um, and then with IUDs, um, all IUDs create an environment in the uterus where sperm can't survive um, with a sterile inflammatory response. 
Um, and then depending on if it has hormones or not hormones, um, there are other things that um, the IUD can do um, that may contribute to its contraceptive action. And how effective, you said it's as effective as sterilization, how effective right. is is that? Right. So, f- for example, so the, the number um, that's easily accessible in my brain is um, with the implant, if you take a 1,000 women within one year, and this is not possible, you're going to get 0.5 pregnancies. So we could just kind of do a little bit of math and say one pregnancy out of 2,000 women in one year. Why do you think someone would choose this option? Why is this a good option for some women? It's actually sort of where the tide is moving in general with um, family planning um, because of how highly effective they are. So I think for people who are looking for something where they don't have to worry about um, human error on their part, um, then this is a great option because once it's there, it's there and it's doing its job and the person doesn't have to remember something routinely. And you mentioned before that return to fertility is pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that can often be a concern for women. What? How quick is quick? I think typically within the first one, maybe two cycles um, at that. But it could even be as quick as seven days. So we suggest that people get on another method right away if they don't want to become pregnant because, you know, the ovaries could be quite ready to ovulate as soon as the other hormone is um, out of the system. So let's talk about other hormonal methods. Um, there are birth control pills, the NuvaRing, Depo Provera, and the patch. Um, Depo is the injection. And so can you talk a little bit about how these work? Sure. So I think about um, the NuvaRing, which is a vaginal ring uh, placed monthly, the patch, which is um, placed weekly in different areas on the skin, and the pill, um, which is daily, those three I think of are in the same category. They work in the same way. They have the same hormones in them, estrogen and then some type of progestin. Um, And those work by inhibiting ovulation, so stopping the ovaries from releasing an egg. And um, the estrogen in them helps build a lining so that people get the feeling or the experience of having a monthly period. So that's you know, why that might be appealing to somebody. Um, With Depo, that also stops the ovaries from releasing an egg. Um, That's an every three-month dose of a hormone. So if you think about it, it has to be a much higher dose to last for three months. Um, And then there are lots of side benefits of all of these hormonal methods. Um, Aside from excellent contraception, um, people can also have relief from menstrual irregularity or menstrual pain or heavy bleeding. Um, And then there are also even some medical benefits. And how effective are these methods? So, you know, the funny answer is they're as effective as well as they are used. So the pills that stay in the drawer aren't very effective at all. But when used perfectly, um, they can be up to 99% effective. Um, typical use puts them more in the category of 94, 92 to 94% effective. And why would someone choose this method or, or one of these methods? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, um, the three that I mentioned, the pill, the ring, and the patch, um, a person can stop independently. They don't need to schedule an appointment to see a provider. 
um, to have it removed so they can stop at any time. So, you know, that's nice to have that autonomy. I think some people really appreciate still cycling or, or looking as if they're cycling normally and having a monthly bleed um, to kind of feel like they're having a period. Um, so that can be appealing to people. And I think they just have been used historically very much. And so they are just quite popular. Another form of birth control are called barrier methods. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about some of these. We can start with talking about the sponge and the diaphragm, also the cervical cap, Mm -hmm. because they are similar. How do these methods work? So by their name, they create a barrier. So they literally block the sperm from getting up into the upper reproductive tract to possibly meet an egg. Um, And they also need to be used with spermicide, um, which is an additional effect that will kill sperm on contact. So those are need to be used in conjunction. You can use them spontaneously. It's not like something that you need to have in your system all of the time. Um, so if there are reasons, medical reasons, um, or personal belief reasons to not use hormones, then these are a pretty viable method, again, if used correctly and consistently. And about how effective are they used correctly, consistently versus typical use? Um, the diaphragm is 86% effective, um, and if it's used consistently and correctly with spermicide, it can be upwards of 94% effective. The cap is around 85%, adding the other factors, 91% effective. And then the sponge, again, with um, spermicide and used consistently and correctly is 91% effective. So the other barrier method that's important to talk about are condoms. Condoms, yes. So um, how do condoms work and how effective are they? Right. So um, condoms are excellent because unlike any of the other contraceptive methods, they can provide a very good amount of protection against transmission of HIV and sexually transmitted infections. Um, So what I suggest to people who do use another form of birth control, that if they do um, have another partner, or a new partner, I should say, um, and they're uncertain of their status and haven't gotten tested yet, I encourage them to use condoms um, in order to protect their bodies in other ways until they're ready to um, not be using condoms with that person anymore. We have a couple more methods to talk about that don't quite perfectly fit into different categories. Um, And... We've been talking about them as behavior change methods. So one of those is abstinence. Can you just describe what abstinence is and why someone might choose that method? Mm -hmm. So abstinence um, would be, I mean, I think it can be defined in different ways depending on who you're asking. Um, But abstaining from a certain activity is just meaning not doing that activity. Um, So you can be abstinent from tobacco. You can be abstinent from alcohol. Um... So in the sense of contraception, you would really only have to be abstinent from penile vaginal intercourse. Um, but you, there are other ways of being intimate with your partner that you wouldn't necessarily have to consider yourself abstinent from. Um, so that's kind of a, the broader view. So abstinence in a birth control sense would be just don't have penile vaginal intercourse and then everything else is still okay because you can't get pregnant from that type of sex. So... And when used correctly, it's 100% 100 effective, effective, the only form of birth control. Um, Another one is um, called withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Um, What is this, and um, why would someone choose that as an option? 
Um, so withdrawal would be um, if the couple is having penile vaginal intercourse and then the person with the penis is um, highly aware, hopefully, of their body's physiology and when they're going to ejaculate and they remove their penis before that happens so that ejaculation doesn't happen inside of the vagina. Um, and so it does require a measure of, um, a pretty high measure of self-knowledge on that person's part. Um, and I think a lot of communication and trust between partners for that to happen correctly. Um, but it can be quite effective, um, if done perfectly, you know, in the first year, only 4% of people will get pregnant. Um, and if done perfectly within two years, only 8% of people will get pregnant. That's how we do the math and family planning like that. Um, if used regularly, like the way that the typical folks would do it, um, it's about 86 to 88% effective. So why would people choose that? I think, um, you know, if for a number of reason, I, reasons, I think people, if, if they have a high level of mutual trust between each other, um, if pregnancy um, wouldn't be so um, life-changing or challenging, it, it may not be um, so dire for them to have to avoid it. Um, I think that if, if there are medical reasons not to use other methods, um, if other methods have been tried and they don't like them or there are side effects that they don't prefer to have. Those are some pretty good reasons off the top of my head. The last one I'd love to talk about is fertility awareness. Mm -hmm. What is that um, and how is it used? So in a nutshell, because it can actually be pretty, pretty complex in lots of different ways of doing this, um, you know, whether it's counting or checking your mucus or feeling how low your cervix is in your vagina, um, you know, checking your body temperature, et cetera. So there are lots of different ways of doing this, but essentially just kind of without going into, um, in great detail, um, it's having a sense of when you're most fertile and avoiding sexual activity that could make you pregnant during your fertile time. Actually, sorry, I wanted to add one more that we didn't get a chance to talk about, which is, um, emergency contraception. Can you talk, that's mm -hmm. a hormonal method, but right. a little bit different than the ones we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. Do you mind just talking about what that is and when to use it? Yeah, so um, this is like the morning after pill um, or emergency contraception. There are a couple of different types of it out um, on the market. So ask your provider which one would be right for you. Um, but essentially, this is after unprotected sex, unprotected penile vaginal intercourse has happened. Um, and the people wish to try to avoid pregnancy. Um, so the way that it works essentially is that it puts off ovulation. Um, if somebody is about to ovulate and then they take this medication, the ovaries won't release the egg with the idea being that the sperm that was deposited vaginally will die before it gets to the egg, that the egg won't be released. Now, if somebody has already ovulated and then they take the morning after pill, um, then you just sort of hope that you don't get pregnant um, because it, it won't do anything to um, an already ovulated egg. So there is a sort of a misconception that um, it's similar to the abortion pill, um, and it's it's definitely not. Um, so it won't interrupt um, fertilization and it won't interrupt implantation at all. Um, but what it will do is put off ovulation if it's taken within the right time. The sooner you take it, the more effective it will be. So 
that's why it's called the morning after pill, essentially. Um, and we sell it here and we prescribe it here and lots of places have it over the counter. Great. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Well, I wanted to mention one other method. Um, so this is called the lactational amenorrhea method. Um, so a couple of factors have to be in place for this to occur. Um, so by the name, you have to be lactating. Um, so this typically will happen after a pregnancy and you have to be a breastfeeding person. Um, and you have to breastfeed on demand. So no scheduled breastfeeding. Don't get your baby on a schedule. You just feed the baby when it's hungry. Let the baby um, be on the breast when it wants to be um, for comfort, for eating. So that's one of the first requirement of it. Um, you have to be amenorrheic, which is the fancy way of saying not having your period. And it has to be within the first six months of birth, of delivery. And so then um, if all of those are in place, then it can be as effective as the long-acting reversibles. Um, but after six months, or if you start bleeding, or if you're not um, breastfeeding on demand, then sort of all bets are off as far as those numbers. Awesome. Thanks for adding mm -hmm. that. You're welcome. That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, visit our new and improved website, mabelwadsworth.org, and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find them on weru.org in the archives or at mabelwadsworth.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or through whatever podcast app you use. Tune in next month at our new time, the first Wednesday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 .9 Bangor, or at weru.org.